say good morning, North Point. I try to find something different to say when I get up here. Uh, uh, First service struggled a little bit to figure out what that video was all about. I I, I saw a lot of those blank stares. I'm really proud of you guys. I saw a lot more like, oh, we kind of get it. If you weren't one of those, that's okay, because we're going to show a video like this for the next nine weeks, and and eventually it will dawn on you. We're in this series that that we're calling uh, Gospel Fluency, uh, Speaking the Truth of Jesus, into the everyday stuff of life. Does that video make a little more sense now? Okay, that's okay. We still have a lot of weeks. It's going to be all, all right. This idea of how do we take this truth of Jesus, this gospel, this good news, this thing that we are, uh, we know and we're convinced of, and how do we, how do we inject that? How do we speak that into, into the everyday stuff of life? Like going to the grocery store and picking up fast food and, and, and people who drive in Michigan and, and just all the normal stuff, right? How do we take this truth of Jesus and inject it into the everyday normal stuff of life. Uh, last week we started this series. It was an intro. This week, uh, if you're in the handbook and, and following along, that's it's called week one because numbers are hard for everybody apparently. But just go with it. And it's interesting because last week I started with a story and I left it as a cliffhanger. And uh, one of my North Point friends uh, caught me at the YMCA this week and lovingly, jokingly chewed me out for leaving a cliffhanger. She's like, you're killing me, Chris. Like, what are you doing? I can't be there next week because of uh, work and stuff. And so I'll never know what happened. And I know some of you cheated and you read ahead in the Bible. And I say, good for you, because I like rebels, right? That's good. Uh, I, but we wanted to start right with that story this morning, jumping right back into Mark chapter 9. If you weren't here this uh, last week, no problem. We'll catch you up to speed. I want to start at the beginning of the story, up to where we left off and then just finish that off. Because I think, I'm convinced personally, that, that what's, what's in this story, this, 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 um, the, the nugget that's in there that we're going to play with a little bit uh, this morning, if we don't grapple with that, we're not going to get nearly as much out of this series in these next few weeks. We'll get stuff out because God is good. But I think without grappling with this issue, uh, we're going to miss the point. And so we just want to grapple with it. So here we are, Mark chapter 9. If you have the North Point app, it's in there. Verse will pop up behind me. Hopefully, if you have a Bible, you're going to want to probably underline some stuff. But but here we go. Uh, Mark chapter 9, Jesus has been doing some Jesus st- stuff. And it sounds weird. For a while, he's made a little bit of a name for himself. So when he shows up to places, people show up. They're, they they want to hear him speak. They're interested in him. They're maybe bringing their sick or ill or whatever because Jesus might do something. And so that's kind of where we're at. And this is where we jump into his life. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 14 says, uh, When they came to the other disciples, the disciples are split up for a minute doing a couple different things. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with the disciples. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man, a dad, and the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked his disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. 
You unbelieving generation, Jesus replies, how long shall I stay with you? How, how long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground, rolled around foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has it been like this? From childhood, dad answers. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus says. Everything's possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. And Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Now, before we get too far into some of the more odd components of the story, like demon possession and and all that's going on there, because we leave that for another sermon, or you could ask your life group leader, sorry, life group leaders, and they'll figure that out for you. Um, The the, the picture that I just want us to have in our head is this situation where where this, this dad, is hurting and sad and hopeless. And he brings his son to the one place that he thinks maybe there's some kind of hope. And in that interaction, we have the religious teachers of the day who have some sort of gospel that they believe in. They have some kind of thing that they think is true, but it doesn't work. Maybe it sounded really good. Maybe it was very intellectual. Maybe it looked good on paper. Maybe there was a nice certificate that came with it that they would hang on their walls. I don't know. But we just know that whatever they had was not working for this dad and this son. And then there's the disciples who who had some sort of gospel as well. They kind of understood maybe what was going on, but whatever they had in their head that they were thinking about, it also didn't work for this dad and this son. And so Jesus shows up on the scene with this this dad and this son. I, I picture them sort of standing in the corner, mouths open going, because the, the religious leaders and the disciples are arguing probably some theological tenet of the gospel. They're arguing some really important thing that the dad and the son are like, just fix him, right? This makes sense. You feel this, right? The pain, the hurt, the hopelessness. And Jesus jumps into the scene and he begins to ask a couple of questions and try to figure out what's going on there. And he, he asks the dad, how long has he been like this? And dad says, you know, from, from the beginning, from ever since childhood, and it's, it's terrible and it's horrible. Help us. And the dad, in verse 22, says this really interesting thing. He says, if you can do anything, if... If, if is a huge word. It's two letters, right? But it ought to be in like 82-point font or something in here. If you can do anything. Maybe, maybe it sounded like if you are able. If it's not too much to ask. If I'm not too flawed to even make the request. If my son isn't too far gone. If it's not too late. If you are really God. If, if. If. Have you ever asked the if question to God? Ah, maybe not verbally. We don't say these things out loud because we're like, oh, people will hear. <laughs> but, but we think these things, right? We have this stuff in our lives, this, this situation, this person, whatever it might be. And sometimes, uh, maybe not during the day, but maybe when we climb into bed at night and it's, it's midnight and, you, and the situation's just churning in your mind and you're, and you're talking to God about it in the quiet and dark of your room and, and you're just thinking, you know, if, if you would just... If you could only, if, if I just did enough, 
kind things. Maybe then if you would listen to me. Do, do you understand the if question? That if question is huge. And this dad says, if you can, if. Jesus says, if, <laughs> if. Everything's possible for people who believe. If you believe, everything's possible. And the dad has this immediate gut level, uh, just came right out of his mouth, no thinking response. Jesus says, anything's possible for someone who believes. And in verse 24, the dad says, I believe. I'm a believer. And then there's this little piece of punctuation. Do you see it? The punctuation should be much bigger here. It's a little semicolon. It's like the greatest pause in history. I don't know how long the pause landed. The dad said, I do believe. I think it was like 8 billion moments of pause. I don't know what happened in the pause. Like I want some detail. I want a little parenthetical or a little note for the footnote or an endnote or something. What happened in the pause when the dad immediately shouts out, I believe, I'm a believer. Did Jesus raise his eyebrows? When he looked Jesus in the face and Jesus goes, just for the front pews, Jesus goes, Really? <laughs> did, did, did Jesus just pause and look at him with that, oh, I, don't, I can't use that word, that, that, that face that we don't like that people look at us with sometimes where they go, what happened in the pause? In that pause, in that semicolon that only takes up, you know, a little tiny quarter of an inch of a page, this dad shifts from, I'm a believer, to help me in my unbelief. This, this is the thing we got to wrestle with. Right at the beginning of this gospel fluency series is this concept right here, this, this pause when this dad, who is a Jewish guy, the religious leaders are there, it's Israel, so I'm sure he's probably Jewish. He's very religious. He probably grew up going to temple since he was born. He had kept all the laws, all the customs, all the festivals. He had tithed. This was a church guy. He was a believer, And yet in the pause, something happens that transitions in his brain where he says, help me in the places I don't believe. Jesus says, if I can, like all things are possible. I believe, wait, help me in my unbelief. And so there's this phrase, I I call it like a come to Jesus moment where he's just caught by who he is. I'm a believer. Wait, help me in the areas that I don't believe. This is the tension that we're going to explore in this gospel fluency. We've put it on the banners. It's on the front of the book. It's this phrase right here. I'm an unbeliever. So are you. That's a challenging phrase. Maybe I'd say it a little more provocatively and say, you're an unbeliever. <laughs> so me too. That's provocative because we often think of believing and not believing in terms of these massive categories. Like at one point I wasn't a believer because I didn't know Jesus and so I was an unbeliever. And then there came this moment where I entered into a relationship with Jesus and I'm a believer now. And it's interesting because I've heard feedback from some people. They're churning with this issue. They're struggling over that phrase. You're an unbeliever. So am I. They're struggling because in, in their minds the category is, well, I'm a believer now. So there you go. Like, what do you mean? How dare you call me not a believer? I've been a believer since I was age eight. This is my story. I grew up in the church. I don't really know when I came into relationship with Jesus. It was really early, but I look at age eight because that's when I got baptized as my public profession of faith. So I've been a believer since I was eight. And yet since uh, age eight to age 44, there's been a ton of times where I have lived in such a way that did not seem to connect with who Jesus was in my life. I did not live like a believer. Are you with me? What do we do with that? 
I'm a believer. But I've lived in these things and done these things and chose to do these things that really don't look like what a believer looks like. What do we do with that? Well, there's some theological concepts that say, well, every time you do that, you lose your salvation. And then you get your salvation back, and then you lose your salvation, and then you get your salvation back, and then you lose your salvation, and then you get your salvation back. And I just want to make this abundantly clear today. That ain't right. You you don't lose this relationship with Jesus. You don't lose your salvation. Now, if if you believe that that's a thing, like if you believe you lose your salvation, I want to say, I love you. I would love to have a conversation with you because it's easy for me to throw these really dogmatic statements out from the front. I want to have that conversation because I just don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So I don't think that's the thing. What do we do with these times in our lives where we're living in a way that doesn't really match our statement of being a believer? Is it, is it possible that maybe we think differently instead of these large believer before I knew Jesus, unbeliever now that I know Jesus, or a believer now that I know Jesus, unbeliever before I knew Jesus, instead of thinking of big categories, maybe we think about it in terms of what do I see coming out of my life? So, so uh, these moments where I choose sin, aren't they moments that are just revealing areas that I'm not really believing Jesus in? Well, Jesus, if you can heal my son, if, if you can, and Jesus goes, if, I'm a believer, ah, help me in my unbelief, help me in the areas where I'm just choosing not to believe you right now. This is a tension, guys, and this is going to be a tension that's going to be so, uh, I say fun because I love tension and chaos and creating tr- trouble, but so fun for us to wrestle through and try and figure out what does this mean, this idea of I'm an unbeliever, so are you. This is uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, the author of the material that we're kind of working through called Gospel Fluency. He says it like this. He says, we still have places in our lives where we don't believe God. There are spaces where we don't uh, trust his word and don't believe what he uh, accomplished in Jesus Christ is enough to deal with our past or what we're facing in this moment or the next. We don't believe his word is true or his work is sufficient. We don't believe we are unbelievers. You may not say that verbally. You may not say, I don't believe Jesus. But we live in those moments as if we aren't believing Jesus. That makes some sense. This can be challenging for us to begin to try and track through this. It's a powerful statement. See, what we believe is true is a big deal. Like truth is a big deal. In in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, the author, Paul, speaking to a church in Ephesus, he, he, he writes about this issue of truth. And this is what he says, starting in verse 20, uh, verse 11. It says, So Christ gave himself to the apostles, the prophets, the, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up till we all reach unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's interesting because Paul starts by talking about there's pastors and and, and evangelists and whatnot, not to do the work of ministry, but to equip you to do the work of ministry. So it's not the pastor's job to pastor. It's the pastor's job to equip the people to pastor. Wrap your head around that. That's a whole nother sermon. And he goes on to say this, though. He says, Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Catch this. Instead, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Jesus Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Talking about the church. 
So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live in, like the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Tons of stuff. Just picking a couple of concepts there. This interesting thing in verse 15 where he says, instead, speaking the truth in love. We, we get this wrong all the time. We use this verse to like take swipes at people. We're like, you're a jerk. I'm just speaking the truth in love. No offense. I'm just speaking the truth in love. You stink. Right? That, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not what God is implying here that somehow we take an opportunity to like take a rip at somebody or take a swipe at somebody somehow under the guise of I'm helping you. Right? I don't know that this is even really saying that we need to really be telling people how to live their life or what they should or shouldn't be doing. So, you know, you go up to be like, hey, you know what? You need to stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Just speaking the truth in love. I don't know that this is telling us, that might be a statement that needs to be said, by the way, but I don't know if this is, this is telling us that we're supposed to be doing that into people. I think there's a bigger picture going on here where it says, speak the truth in love. Down in verse 17, he begins to talk about this futility of their thinking. Some people live with futile gospels, gospels that have no hope, no comfort, no future, no progress, no nothing futile thinking. Paul says, you don't live like that because you know better than that. And in verse 20, he drives down to this concept of truth. He says, however, it's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him. That phrase, heard about Christ, it's a challenge because in in every English version of the Bible, it translates heard about Christ. But the word about is not in the original language. It literally says, uh, however, it's not the way you learned when you heard Christ. And our English versions do that because they don't want us to go down the wrong theological road and say, well, you know, you can't be a Christian unless you actually hear Jesus talk to you audibly because that's just not biblical. So, so they use the word about in there to try and help us put our heads around it, but it, it literally says when you heard Christ, not audibly, but when you had this, 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 this moment, this interaction, this, this time where Jesus like blew up for you, does that make sense? I don't know how, what words to use here. When, when you had this moment where, where Jesus became real, not, not what you'd heard about Jesus or sung about Jesus or painted pictures about Jesus, but where like Jesus showed up in a real way to you. Not, not physically, not like in a weird dream. Maybe that happened. I don't know. But, but like you had this moment where, where Jesus became alive. Does that make sense? Do you, are you tracking with what I'm trying to paint here. It's not the idea that you heard about Jesus, but you heard Jesus. Nowhere else in the Bible does it talk about learning a person. This is the only person that the Bible uses these kinds of phrases of that we would learn Jesus or hear Jesus. And he goes on to say this, and he says, in accordance with uh, the truth that is in Jesus. The word in is not in the original language. It literally says, in accordance with the truth that is Jesus. And so as we talk about this concept of gospel fluency, injecting, speaking the truth of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life, we're literally saying speaking Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. One of the commentaries I I have, he puts it this way. He says, find Jesus and you find truth. 
find truth, and you find Jesus. So being fluent in the gospel doesn't mean speaking truths into the everyday stuff of life. It literally means speaking Jesus, the truths of Jesus, into the everyday stuff of life. I know that seems very similar, but I think the difference is huge. It's not just about speaking truth. It's about speaking Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. Uh, I mess this up all the time. I think there's a couple ways we, I, I, we <laughs> mess this up all the time. Number one, this is me, uh, I, give, I, give good, I give good advice. Like part, that sounds, that's going to sound great on video. Uh, I give good advice. Uh, 805-291, just kidding. Um, the, 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 when people come, part of my, my role, my job, people come talk to me, we try and think through life together, find a better way of approaching stuff and whatnot. And so in that, I often give advice, good advice, but I'm realizing that I often forget to give them Jesus. Like I give advice, and maybe it's, it's like biblical, it's, it's, I don't mean this, like, just take it. It's good advice, but, but, but i got to give them Jesus. Right? It's easy to tell people what to do. It's difficult to lead them to Jesus and let them discover how Jesus applies to the situation. Like, I call this gospel-ish. If you're, if you're using the handbook uh, with us, uh, you'll get to explore that question. What does gospel-ish mean uh, in your world? For me, I think that that's part of it. It's easy to give advice. It's easy to tell people what to do. It's easy to make some suggestions, but it's much harder to give people Jesus. It's easy to quote a Bible verse at someone, but harder to pray with them and be with them. Not just giving advice, but giving them Jesus. There's this great, uh, it's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's about a guy named Jacob. Some of you probably heard this story before. Jacob was this this uh, Jewish guy. He was like doing his thing, whatever, and his life was pretty messed up. Uh, so he ran away from home, and, and it kind of went off. And then later on, as he's running away from home, he decides to get a wife, and he gets cheated, and he ends up with two wives, and that's a whole other story. So he's got some wives, got a bunch of kids, got a bunch of stuff. And this point comes in his life where he's got to go uh, back home, and he's going to like uh, reunite, like, He's going to see his brother again, and his brother hates him. And the last thing his brother said to him was, like, I'm going to kill you if I ever see you again. And so Jacob's got to head back and, like, see this guy. And so, like, there's this huge drama. It's like nobody else has any kind of drama in their life anymore, right? This is just from the Bible times. Cool. So, so Jacob's, like, freaking out. He's terrified because his brother's, like, this crazy maniac guy. And so, so Jacob's like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. And so he's, like, hiding stuff, and he's, like, putting part of his family and his, like, people who work for him and stuff all over the place so that, like, his brother won't kill him. It's insane. And the night before he's going to go, meet up with his brother, uh, he, he prays, which is super funny because uh, Jacob is like this great example of an unbelieving believer. So he prays because when you're in trouble, that's what you do, right? Like you forget about God and then one day you're like, oh, I'm going to die. Hey, Jesus. So, so that's what he does. He's praying and it's super interesting because if, if Jacob had like talked to me, I probably would have given him good advice. Like, you know, Jacob, you should probably write a letter to your brother. Write him a letter and, and list all the ways that you've offended him and ask for forgiveness and restitution and be willing to make restitution. That's good advice, by the way. Don't, I mean, like, that's good advice. Be willing to make restitution on those things. To have that letter delivered and ask him to, sometimes it's hard to speak eye to eye, but it's easier to speak on pay. Like, it's good advice, right? But here's what happened. As Jacob's praying, like, good that Chris isn't there because I messed up, but, but Jacob's praying and, and this person shows up while he's praying, and they start wrestling. Ah, that's weird right there. I don't know like that, why that's the first thing you do with this person you just met. You just jump on him and start wrestling, but out of the Old Testament. I don't know. So they're wrestling, and, and as the story goes on, we learn that this person isn't a person, but it's actually God. And so God showed up as, as how this would blow your brain. Jacob is praying to God, and God shows up. 
That'd mess you up, wouldn't it? And they start wrestling. That'd mess you up. And they're wrestling for like a long time. And it's weird because like, like Jacob's like getting God as he's wrestling him like, like, like God's dad. And you're like your five-year-old kid. You let them sometimes think they're winning because you want to build their confidence or whatever. But you know, like you're 220 pounds and they're 20 pounds. There's like no chance of winning here. You just lay on them when you want to and squash them. So, so God's like letting Jacob get some holds and stuff. I don't know how it worked. And, and, and this goes on for a while. And over time, Jacob figures out, well, this isn't just a man like this is something more we get told that it's god is so interesting because at one point god like jabs jacob in the hip and it like wrenches his hip out of socket that had to feel good yeah and so some of you wrestlers are like oh man right so so god does that and so jacob's got like this gimpy hip now but he's got this death hold on god he's like not letting him go and he's i I just my picture in my head he's yelling in god's ear i'm not letting you go until you bless me (laughs) it's the weirdest story on the planet right you picture this? I, mean, I got all kinds of scenes in my head like police arriving, but don't go with me. So he's got this death hold on God and he's like, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And you got to read the rest of the story to see what happens because it's so fascinating. I know I do this a lot. Eh? So fascinating because if I'd have been in that, I'd have given Jacob some good advice and forgotten potentially to give him God. God shows up and wrestles because what Jacob needed was like a good whooping from God. <laughs> And God gives it to him. And Jacob goes on in his life with that limp, like, like that, that socket never completely heals. And we learn that Jacob, for the rest of his life, gets his nickname because he, you know, he limped with God and whatever. And so, like, he needed that. He goes on with that permanent reminder physically, but I've got to imagine spiritually and emotionally of his, his wrestling with God. I think that's a great picture of prayer, by the way. We're trying to figure out prayer. Like, I'm just praying to God. I'm like talking to this God who's like listening or not. I don't, what do I do? But I like it's wrestling with God. That picture of Jacob having a death hold on God's neck saying, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Like, that's this picture, I think, of, of, of gospel fluency. And often what I forget to do, we give good advice. We don't give them what they need. God knew Jacob needed this moment to go mano e mano with the God of the universe. And he let it happen. Here's the second way that sometimes I, I think uh, often uh, we, we, I, we mess this up is, is that we provide for physical needs for people, but we forget um, to give them Jesus. Now, I, I want to be clear here. I, I think the Bible is clear, and, and, and we ought to be providing needs for people. We ought to be helping where we can help. Scripture is clear about supporting the least of these and helping those who can't help themselves. I mean, that's, that's, that's clear. We're not just going to get away from that. But, but too often, we provide something for somebody, a thing, pay a bill, give a ride, give a dollar, whatever it might be, and we don't give them Jesus. And we think somehow in our heads, like, oh, well, they'll figure it out. Like, like we're going to do this thing, and they'll figure it out. They'll figure out that I'm doing this because of Jesus. But, but I'm just saying gospel fluency means how do I inject Jesus into that moment of life? Not just do really nice stuff for people, but really figure out how do I inject the truth of Jesus into that everyday stuff of life. Vanderstelt, in the, in the handbook, he says it like this. He says, what about Jesus and his work might be good news to that person today? How can I bring the hope of the gospel to bear on this life or situation so this person might experience salvation and Jesus will be glorified? What about Jesus and his work might be good news to that person today? That's a great question. Maybe the best question. Vanderstelt goes on and, and defines salvation like this. He says, salvation is moving from unbelief in Jesus to belief in him in the everyday stuff of life. 
See, salvation, sometimes we've just gotten this concept that it's a one-time event. And coming into relationship with Jesus, being saved from your sin, heaven being your trajectory, that is a one-time event. And so we say that's salvation, and then everything else after that, I don't know what to do. And, and Vanderstel really does expand our brains to talk about salvation in terms of moving from unbelief to belief in every area of our lives. And so as Christ followers, as believers, there are these sins that I continue to choose to do. And I'm a lot like Paul, where Paul says, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? And the things I want to do, I can't do those. Help me, God. Like, because those reveal areas of my life where I am not really believing the way I need to be believing. Praise God that he reveals those areas to us. Salvation, we would use the theological word sanctification. Moving from areas of unbelief to belief in every area of our life. This is how Vanderstelt kind of finishes this thought. He says, I believe that this is what God wants his people to experience with the gospel. He wants them to be able to translate the world around them and the world inside of them through the lens of the gospel. The truth of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus. Gospel-fluent people think, feel, and perceive everything in light of what has been accomplished in the person and work of Jesus. They see the world differently. They think differently. They feel differently. Most significantly, those who are growing in gospel fluency are experiencing ongoing transformation themselves. They're experiencing ongoing change as the truths of the gospel are brought to bear on their thoughts and beliefs, emotions and actions, transforming them into greater Christ-likeness every day. Amen? Amen. If you'd stand, we'll sing a song. We'll be done.